Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 through 17. We're going to talk about a couple of other passages prior to that, but we're going to get to that eventually, I promise. Uh, it's good to be back with God's people. Um, we'll probably give a report on our trip in a couple weeks uh, when we can find a good time to do that. Um, but um, just a reminder for those of you who haven't heard part of the story before, we're basically working with um, a number of Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterian churches um, in Columbia. And uh, one of our favorites that we have been working with very closely, it's the second time we've gone to this same place, is a uh, you, you know how every, every town calls themselves the, you know, there's a church that calls themselves First Baptist or First Presbyterian or what have you, you know, kind of thing? Well, in this town, um, city of a million and a half people in Cartagena, it is the first Presbyterian church. There has never been another Presbyterian church ever, ever. And it was started by three rappers, like people that rap music. And it's an awesome church, and I want to tell you all about it, and we will in a couple weeks. But with that being said, uh, go ahead and open your Bibles again. Second Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your blessing upon the reading, the preaching of your word. We pray that uh, the word would become uh, something that's dear to all of us. We pray that we would believe in the cross of Christ, believe in the resurrection of Christ, believe in the power of the Spirit to transform lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was Palm Sunday, but because of a sore throat... Five-year-old Johnny had to stay home from church with his mother, and to his surprise, when the rest of the family came home, his brothers and sisters were all carrying palm branches in their hands, as you might expect, but he had never heard of this. He's five years old. When Johnny asked what the branches were for, they told him that people held them over Jesus' head as he walked by. And unexpectedly, this explanation made Johnny kind of mad. And he said, wouldn't you know it, the one Sunday I don't go to church Jesus shows up. You remember what it was like to be five, right? <laughs> At the time of the first Palm Sunday in 33 AD, around that period of time, many people in Jerusalem were very excited that Jesus showed up. And the city was stirred. I mean, it was an electric atmosphere. They were expecting something grand, something marvelous to happen. Many were throwing their cloaks on the ground and were tearing off, cutting leaf branches and, and laying them, you know, for a mile ahead of him so that he could walk upon these things as he was coming into the city. And, of course, they all were expecting him as the Messiah, as the King of Kings to come and, and to do something spectacular. But why did they believe him on the same type of donkey as he rode into the city to be anointed as the new king? And so we see even with these statements that they're uh, that they're continuing to repeat over and over again, Hosanna, Hosanna. Uh, they're literally the word in the Hebrew means save us. They're expecting this king to come and save them from their enemies. 
particularly in this regard, their Roman enemies, the, the Roman Empire who has them in subjection. And it would make sense because this is the time of the Passover as well. And if you remember, the Passover is a looking back upon this great triumph of God over the Egyptians, right? So they're looking forward to God doing the same thing with the Romans. And in fact, if you remember the song of Moses that's sung after they come out of the Red Sea and they're just they're just continually rejoicing that God has triumphed over all our enemies. And so as they're looking forward to what God might do, they're looking for the same type of expectation that God is going to do something marvelous, some drastic display of slaying of many thousands of Roman troops, if you will. Even when they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, they're, they're, they're saying, come save us now, we beg you. You are the king. We've been waiting for you. You're here. Now come and do what you've promised. And in, in many ways, this account is compared to the account of Julius Caesar coming into the city of Rome. It's very similar. In fact, uh, the Gospel of Mark is written to Romans, and they're meant to see the similarities between these two figures. Julius Caesar had come into the city of Rome similar to the way that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. And he had only done it less than 100 years prior. If you remember the famous crossing of the Rubicon, he comes in and he's the, they're very similar figures. They're loved by the people, but they're hated by the leaders of their respective cities. And they come in and they both take great risk publicly coming into the city. Now, in, in Julius Caesar's case, the Senate had proclaimed that if, if he didn't immediately disband his army and lay down his arms, that he would be declared the enemy of the state. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't even have an army. And yet, within a week, he was killed as an enemy of the state. There, there are a number of similarities, but there are a lot, a lot of divergences as well. The recipients of this Gospel of Mark originally would have noticed these similarities as well as these differences. If Jesus were the Messiah, the true king of the Jews, why doesn't he come and conquer? Why doesn't he claim his rightful authority in the same way that Caesar does? That's the expectation. You remember the famous line, what, is, what does Caesar say? I came, I saw, and what? I conquered. The way Mark's gospel is displayed, it, it Literally, Mark's gospel doesn't even have Jesus coming in to cleanse the temple the same day. He goes home and then comes back the next day to cleanse the temple. He comes, he sees, and then nothing happens. It's, it's really strange the way it reads. In fact, Mark's gospel is, is very unique compared to many of the other gospels. It's a, it's a very action-oriented gospel. There are very few parables, there are very few teachings in the gospel of Mark. But you have a lot of action. And tradition tells us that Peter is actually the one who has witnessed these events, is telling the story to Mark, who's writing it down for our benefit. Now, if you can imagine Peter is the one who's speaking, he's constantly saying, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, right? In fact, you can see in the Gospel of Mark, every sentence almost begins with the word and. He's telling the story, and, 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 and. All these things happen. But then when you get to this one day, on Palm Sunday, nothing happens. And it's meant to stand out like a sore thumb. Why is nothing happening? You're expecting this king to come and conquer. They're, they're, they're shouting out Hosanna in the highest, etc., etc., and then nothing happens. And then a week later, if it's the same crowd, 
Now they're crying out, crucify sense if you look at it from this perspective alone. How could he be the king? Nothing happens. Listen to the language again. It says, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He looks around at everything. And because it was already late, he went back to Bethany. Nothing happens. The first time in the gospel that nothing happens. But I guarantee you, every one of your Bible translations in some way or another is going to have a heading at the top of any of these chapters, whether it's in Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John. And that the heading of that passage will say, the triumphal entry. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Where's the triumph? Where's the victory? We don't see it. Uh, Even after his resurrection, uh, Jesus' disciples are still confused. Acts begins uh, with this statement by the disciples. They said, Lord, will you at this time now restore the kingdom to Israel? You didn't do it before when you came into the city. Is it now? You've resurrected? Now, are you going to do it now? Are you going to conquer as a king? And he simply says to them, it's, it's not for you to know the times or seasons when my kingdom comes. Instead, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to go out through all the world and proclaim the gospel, which is, again, confusing to them. Instead of focusing on conquering the Roman Empire, Jesus wants them to preach the gospel to the world. How do you reconcile these two different ideas? Was not the king supposed to subdue all his enemies? Was he not to free all those in captivity? He was, but not in the way that you might think. And this is what the New Testament epistles are constantly grappling with. How is this a victory when we don't see it fully? Even Mark's gospel, it doesn't actually end with the disciples seeing Jesus resurrected. They're only hearing of his resurrection. They don't see it with their own eyes in Mark's gospel. So you have to go to the epistles to get the rest of the story. But the the issue as well is this. When Jesus comes into the city, everyone recognizes him to be a king. But the gospel writers are also informing us that he's not just a king, but he's also a priest. That when he comes into the city, he's riding on a very special type of donkey, one that has never been ridden before. And the purpose for this is to set this animal aside as a sacrifice normally. Normally, Leviticus is various that can be offered to God, one that has never been used in service, one that has never been ridden before, etc., etc. But in this case, it's not the, the beast, uh, the, burden, the, the beast of burden himself that is the sacrifice, but the one carrying the sacrifice. Because the scripture writers want us to understand that Jesus is not only the king that has been promised in the Old Testament, but he's also the suffering servant. He is the priest who would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so when he comes into the city of Jerusalem, the only thing that he does is he curses a fig tree. Which sin is conquered. Death itself is conquered through Jesus rising from the grave, giving us new hope in the life and the death of Jesus that gives us our own hope of the resurrection. That's the first part. There's this new hope uh, through the resurrection of Christ. But then secondly, there's a passage in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where the apostle explains that In Christ's death on the cross and through his resurrection, he's done this. He not only has conquered sin and death, but he also has disarmed the spiritual rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, instead of conquering the Romans, Christ has conquered sin, he's conquered death, and he's conquered the devil himself. He's conquered the demons who have bound unbelievers for thousands of years from seeing the light of the gospel in Christ. So what's happened is now, 
all of those pagan nations that could not and would not attach themselves to Israel, that would not worship the one true God, now Satan has been bound to the point where they can now hear the gospel freely. And it's a marvelous thing. I mean, you think about it, even the, the passage that David read earlier in Psalm 108, he's, he's speaking of the fact that Jerusalem is saying, Lord, are you ever going to conquer in this way? Are you ever going to open the, the gospel up to the rest of the nations? And it only happens through the cross of Christ. But then there's a third passage I want to point out as well. And that's the one that we're in this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 14 and following. And there Paul speaks about Christ Jesus always leading us, meaning the, the people of God, in triumphal procession and through us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So in here, in this case, not only has Christ conquered sin and death, and now he's also conquered the devil and his demons, but now he's also conquered a people and puts those people on display. Now this is an analogy that he's using. It's called a triumphal procession. In ancient history, in the Roman Empire, Whenever a general had won a great victory, he was thrown a parade, if you will, a grand procession that would lead through the city streets of Rome so that they could display the spoils of war. They could display the great victory that had been won on behalf of Rome. Now, the general himself would be the one leading this parade, and he would be dressed in a uh, a fine purple toga, dressed like a king, holding a scepter in his hand as if he were the king that day. You know the, the drill. He'd be riding in a golden chariot pulled by four horses, and his face would be painted completely red in honor of the, the god of Mars. He has won the victory. The, the gods have blessed his fighting, and therefore he's now glorying in his victory, if you will. But, but then behind him, there would be uh, all of his troops that had fought on his behalf, and they're dressed up in their, in their, their best clothes, uh, their, their dress uniforms, if you will, and they're displaying also this, this aspect of the glory of Rome, just walking in uniform procession, pointing out how, again, that they are the best of the best, if you will. But it's, that it's then behind them that we see the, the vast majority of the, of the procession are all of these people who have been conquered, all of these people who have been subdued. Not only the soldiers, but also their leaders, their generals, their government officials, all of them are also dressed in their native costumes, in their best costumes, if you will. But then they're all led in chains. They're all in shackles as they come behind, all one in line. You just see just hundreds and hundreds of them coming behind the general and his troops. Now, while this procession is going on, the pagan priests are constantly lighting incense, and, and, and you just constantly smell there's something that's about to happen. They're preparing a sacrifice, if you will. They're preparing for the, these people to come into the presence of their gods. All the while, the court musicians are, are, are playing their, their drums and, 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 and establishing an atmosphere, getting people ready. Something exciting is about to happen. All the while, tens of thousands of Romans are throwing flowers into the streets so that the, the soldiers and, and the general can walk upon them. This is a grand victory. Now, at the end of the line, what we find is that some of the captives, in fact, many of them are slaughtered in the sight of all as a sacrifice unto the gods. The few that were not killed then became slaves of some of the more prominent generals who had fought in the battles. Uh, but as we can see, the, the crowd is smelling this incense, and it's just a sweet-smelling aroma. They're getting ready to give this great offering unto their gods. But those who are in line with the shackles on them, it's not so sweet, is it? <laughs> it 
It's a, a very putrid smelling thing already because they know that they're the ones who are going to be offered in sacrifice unto God. Now, now Paul's using this analogy in, in, a, in an unusual way. When we first read it, we might think that he's explaining it in such a way that we are Christ's co-conquerors, right? We are the soldiers that are following behind Christ in his train, and we're dressed in our, our dress uniforms, and we got our swords, and you know, we're ready to go into battle, if you will, again. But that's not the way he's using the language here. Rather, he's describing us as the ones who have been conquered, that we are the rebels to his reign, that we are the ones who had fought against him and now have been shackled in chains. Now, we may not have realized it at the time, but in addition to Satan being conquered at the time of the resurrection of Christ, he also conquered a people who were in league with Satan, who were actually fighting on his side, if you will, even if they didn't recognize that they were conscripts in the devil's army. And that's the thing. It, he's describing just a slew of people who once were in league with the devil, but now who have been captive to Christ. We are not soldiers in the parade. We are those who have been brought into subjugation. We are the ones who are either condemned to death or else made slaves unto Christ. We are his reward. We are his triumph. If the world wants to see evidence of Christ's conquest today, they will not find it in a subdued city, but in a subdued people. Those who once were enemies that Christ has paid the penalty for that rebellion. Christ has won our salvation. Then all it smells like to them is a, is, a, is a sign of death. Eventually what Paul is saying here is that we ourselves are the sweet-smelling aroma to God in either case. So in other words, the, the incense itself is for God's uh, nostrils, if you will, rather than just people's. And in this case, whether our word goes out successfully and people come to faith in Christ, or whether our word goes out and it seems like no one comes to Christ, either way, to God it's a sweet-smelling aroma for two reasons. On the one hand, we're telling the sweet-smelling gospel, and on the other hand, because we have become the sweet-smelling aroma of the gospel ourselves. We who once were enemies of God are now those his treasured possession we are the spoils of war so it's at this point paul asks a very important question verse 16 in our text he says who is sufficient for these things in other words uh, this is a very high calling for a christian that if someone wants to see evidence of christ's victory today he's not going to find it in any other place other than Christ's church. If you want to see evidence of Christ's victory, his triumph, you're going to find it in his people, in his Christians. And when an unbeliever sees a Christian who has been conquered, if you will, by the Lord, who now no longer lives for himself, but now lives for another master, calling Jesus his Lord as well as his Savior, and living for that new Lord and Master, there's something about it that draws unbelievers to the gospel. There's something about their message as well as their person themselves that draws them unto the, unto the gospel. But, but you could see how this would be complicated, though. After all, are we not still sinners as Christians? Do we not still sin? 
let me put it this way. Does not our sin still stink? So when an unbeliever sees a Christian who sins, are they not led away from the gospel by the putrid smell of our sin? It's a good question to ask, is it not? Now, know that uh, the gospel-bearing person, this Christian who now has professed faith in Christ, is not someone who is perfect. They're, they're, they still sin. But it's who they're continuing pointing to. It's, it's the person who continues to give them hope to overcome their sin, hope to have forgiveness of sin, hope to have the resurrection and the life. It's all going to come through Christ. But there's something about it. Now, on the other hand, there are those who say they're Christians and profess Christianity, but yet they live another life altogether. Obviously, that's a really bad smell, right? Uh, those who say they're Christians but don't live like Christians, uh, the world constantly sees those people, and it's just a horrible smell. And it's not the gospel because they say with their lips that they're Christians, but then the reality of their lives says something exactly opposite. It's a different message altogether. And that's what Paul, in the, in the context of this passage, he's saying there are some people who are mere peddlers of God's Word. In other words, they're just trying to sell you something. They don't really believe it. They don't really buy into it. They don't live it, in that sense. Um, in ancient times, you have a, a number of people that would try to sell you things in very wicked ways. It's very common back then. Uh, instead of having a, a um, uh, a trusted way of measuring things. They, uh, each vendor would have his own set of weights and measures, and they could easily put face, I can't even say the word this morning, false and fake weights um, that have no weight to them at all in order to get a better deal for themselves or add extra weight to the guy they're trying to sell something to so they can charge him more. Or we mentioned a couple weeks ago in the same way that some people would try to sell you cracked pots and then they would, they would sell it to you under the cover of darkness. It would be under a tent so that you can see the sun shining cracks. And they help with some type of glue and mixture of, of, of oils and resin. And so Paul's saying in verse 17, we are not like that. We are not men who are mere peddlers of God's word, but men who, of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak Christ. Um, but the truth of the matter is, we're not selling crackpots. We are crackpots. And if you think about it, and we're going to get to this later on in 2 Corinthians, every one of us is a crackpot. Every one of us has ruined our lives. Every one of us, if you just look at us, we're going to stink. We're not presenting ourselves. We're presenting Christ who has redeemed ourselves. We're, we're pointing them to the Christ who can redeem any sinful, wicked person's life, including ours, even the chief of sinners. The beauty of the gospel is not that we were so great to begin with, <laughs> but that Christ has always been great, and he makes people that are worthless into great people who have trusted in Christ. Amen? It's interesting. I was talking to someone last week in, in Bogota, the capital city of, of Colombia. She's an unbeliever, and uh, she was speaking in her best English, and I was speaking my best Spanish, so forgive me if I don't get it exactly right, but uh, she, when I told her I was a pastor as well as a professor, um, it was teaching classes down there. Um, she asked me what type of Christian I was. And I said, well, um, you probably haven't heard of it. Since there's only one Presbyterian church in the whole area, right? Um, she had never heard of Presbyterian. But she had heard of Christian. She didn't use the word Protestant, but she was, she was distinguishing between what she said was Christian and Catholic. 
Now, again, the majority of the, the church in, in Colombia is, is Catholic, and then after that it would be a, a health and wealth gospel of a charismatic movement, if you will. And then very small in between you'll find evangelical churches. So they're still, it's still growing. But the way she described the differences between what she said was the, the Catholic church and the Christians, she said the Catholic church mainly follows their religion based upon tradition. And she said, but every now and then I've met a Christian who actually believes it. That's how she described the difference. And she says, they're devout. Um, and I said, honestly, that's probably the best way you can explain it. Not, not to say that every Catholic is, is, is just tradition, is not devout in their faith, but, but when she sees someone who's different from just the one who's going through the motions, just the one who's going through the tradition, she says, there's a difference, and I've noticed it. Now, she hasn't made a profession of faith, but she's beginning to see there is a, a, a true version of this, and there's one that just goes through the motions. Um, the same way I was uh, talking to one of the leaders of the churches in Cartagena, and uh, he used to sell books in, in the city, and so he would sell religious books, and at the time it was like stuff like Joel Osteen and a bunch of those health and wealth gospel type of things, and he came under conviction that he was merely a peddler of God's word, and he was selling books that were not helpful to anyone, and so he got rid of all of them and then bought all reformed type of books that were more evangelical in nature. And then he went out of business because nobody wanted to buy them. But he had come under conviction that he didn't want to just sell people things that weren't helpful to them anymore. And so now he actually has started a mission church in his own hometown of Rocha. Now, Rocha is, a, is what used to be a slave colony back in the 16th century that broke away from the Spaniards, if you will. And so to this day, everyone who lives in this town, and there are other towns like it, uh, there are no really what you would call Hispanic peoples as much as it's all African peoples. But they all speak Spanish. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's really neat. And uh, you go into that town, and he was explaining to me, it's, well, I preached a sermon there, and while I was there, the, you know, the whole time I'm preaching, there's a, a, a burrow who's just like hee-hawing the whole time you're there, and pigs running around your, you know, every which way, and chickens and roosters and what have you. And, and, um, but he explained to me how they started the church there. And he said, well, Every other church that's in this town is, is either a Catholic church based upon tradition or it's more of a charismatic health and wealth church that is always looking to get more money from the people. And so he said, we didn't want to do either one of those approaches. And so um, the first number of months that we went into the, the, the town, we didn't ask anything of them at all. But rather what we would do is we'd go into the town and we would simply give them food because it's a town that doesn't have a whole lot of uh, people that can support themselves. You give them food, and then uh, around Christmas time, they give them a bunch of toys. They would always come giving things. And then eventually they would set up uh, times where they would preach the gospel, and, and uh, a couple people had brought their own chairs, so the, the, the church ended up buying a bunch of plastic chairs just so they could set them all out so people could come and sit and, and hear the gospel itself. But he said, my intention from the beginning was not to give them the impression in any way that we wanted something from them. We wanted to give something to them. We wanted to give them the gospel of Christ. And he said that because of that, the people have noticed a huge difference and that now they just got people coming out of the woodwork. The funny thing is they, uh, similar to our church, they, they start off by uh, playing really loud rap music. And that's what draws people to the church. That's how we did it here too in the beginning, back in the 60s. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, but uh, they, they really, and I mean really loud rap music. And, uh, but it's all biblical theology rap music. You have to hear it in Spanish. It's quite fascinating. But um, 
the people there come because they know that the people giving them the gospel love them. And they've seen a difference in them. And that's why they want to continue to come. And, and, and they're eager and excited when they, when they come. Uh, in my case, it's more fun because uh, afterwards, every single one wants a picture with the tall white gringo in that regard because I'm a circus freak of some kind uh, when I go over there. But um, in this case, um, we can go back to the very beginning, back in the third century. It was the same way. Origen was one of the early church fathers, and he was writing an apologetic against the pagans who were basically accusing Christians of, of being the one who's destroyed the empire, if you will. And, uh, and he, he's saying this. He says, everywhere I go, Christ is spoken against. People hate Christianity because they think it's a threat to the government. They think it's a threat to their religions. And yet the glory of Jesus is shining in the lives of ordinary men and women all throughout the empire. And numbers every day are being converted because they see the glory of Jesus in the flesh of men and women. Those who actually see the gospel, not only spoken but embodied in a Christian man or woman. It's attractive. It makes them want to consider the claims of Christ. I don't remember how long ago it was taken, but there was a survey at one of Billy Graham uh, Association uh, after a number of the Crusades had had, had taken place. And the statistic reported this, that over 90% of the people who came forward at all of those Crusades had come because they had seen some person recently who was living a Christian life that had impressed them. 90% came when they were invited because they knew someone who had impressed them that they were different. They had learned how to love. They had learned to share something of their lives with them in a sacrificial way. And as a result of that, they wanted to hear more about the claims of Christ. And then later on would end up uh, professing that same faith themselves. You see, it doesn't matter where you live or what time period that you live in, unbelievers can tell the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel, and they can tell the difference in the person themselves. Because you have to understand what's happening is you are, as the believer, the conquered ones of Christ, to be put on display as the spoils of war. How do you know that Christ has won the victory? You have to look at the spoils of victory. And his believers, we are the victory. We are the proof of the victory. And that's why Paul says, you know, how could we ever live up to such a task? None of us can perfectly, but we're all pointing to Christ and what he has done. But it reminds me of a a story of a soldier on a military base who one day went to the post office to pick up uh, a letter from his fiancée, from his sweetheart. But when he asked about the letter, he was told that it had not arrived yet. In fact, it's the second or third time he's been in the same week. He keeps asking, has, has the letter come? Has the letter come? Each time he'd say, no, it's not here. But on this third attempt, when he comes, he insisted that the letter was there, that it had come, even though they said it had not. And you ask, well, how, how do you know whether or not, uh, how would he know possibly that the letter had come? Well, in, in, in this particular case, uh, he had a good reason, but, you know, generally post office, I, I actually sent a package to Columbia last year, and I paid 100 bucks to have this package that had contents in it that was worthless to go to a particular place in Columbia, and they lost it. 100 bucks down the drain. Gets lost all the time. Apparently, Bogota is known for having packages that have been sitting there for 10 years. You'll never find them. But in this case, the soldier was absolutely certain that the package was there. And, and they said, well, how can you know? He said, well, I can smell the perfume 
of my fiance on her letter and it is her letter use your nose and you'll find it within five minutes they handed him the letter because he recognized the smell of his fiance this is what paul is saying if you want to know whether the claims of christ are true use your nose you ought to smell Christ upon his people. There's an aroma about them that's different. There's a love of Christ that dwells within them. There's a sacrificial love that's growing within them. And unbelievers, if, you, if you're here today and you have not yet trusted in Christ, someone has probably brought you today. Someone has recommended that you come today. Someone who loves you and who wants the best for you. Pay attention to their lives. It's not just words. They want you to know Christ, the one who changes lives. The same way, if you're a believer today, man, that's a lot of pressure upon you. Is it not? You are the evidence. You are the sweet-smelling aroma. So I think even as I hear a message like this, it makes me immediately want to pray and say, Lord, I stink more than I smell good. Help me to share that sweet-smelling aroma of the gospel. Help me to continue to uh, be faithful to the calling that you've placed upon me. This is exactly what he's saying. If you want to see evidence of his victory, certainly we would love to see it in an immediate resurrection from the dead. You're you're more than likely not going to see that. You'd love to see it in how Christ conquers uh, the devil and the enemies, and probably you're not going to see that. That's in a spiritual realm. You're not going to see that very clearly. But the one evidence that you are meant to see, that you're meant to look for, is the evidence of a conquered people. Not a conquered city or a conquered country, but a conquered people. That when they know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, they take on a different aroma altogether. And that's sweet to God and should be sweet to them. Pray for your, 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 your friends and your neighbors and your family members. Not only that they would hear the gospel, but that they would smell the gospel in you and in me. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask uh, that you would use these crackpots, that you would use uh, a broken people, you would use a sinful, rebellious people, those who had fought against you tooth and nail in every way, and yet you have conquered us by the gospel of Christ. You have conquered us by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us to live that resurrected life even now through the Spirit of God that people around us would sense something of gospel fruit in us, something of that sweet-smelling aroma of the gospel as it's displayed in your people. Father, we, we pray, give us open doors for the gospel and give us many opportunities to share the fragrance of the gospel of Christ, we pray. Jesus.